really quickly here for all those listening, this isn't an ad. I just want to really thank you sincerely. I really mean it. If you count bonus episodes and reaction episodes, we're coming up on our 50th episode of this podcast. And on this podcast, it's been quite a journey. We started about two years ago, I think. And for some of us now, it's been over a decade. And all of you represent an important piece to such a loyal following of this podcast. And I really could never have imagined it. So what I am really um, just trying to say is thank you. And now here is today's episode. Welcome to season three of What Really Happened, executive produced by Seven Bucks Productions, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks. You can also become a contributor to the show by going to jenkspod.com slash contributors. This story contains strong language and potentially disturbing content. Discretion is advised. A story is the most convincing way to understand a universal truth. A few months ago, a friend told me an unbelievable story. The next day, he sent a link to a newspaper article with more details. It blew me away. It's about two people. Although I can't confirm their respective names, let's say one is named Sarah, the other is named Mike. Mike has been on Tinder, but isn't having much luck. Same with Sarah. But they match, and they start talking to each other. It goes back and forth for a while. Six months, actually. Finally, they go on a date. Mike picks up Sarah for dinner. They're enjoying their meal, but she begins to feel sick. She tries to push through, but can't. Mike says, no problem, they can reschedule. And Mike says he'll take her home. But on the way home, Sarah starts to feel better. Hey, do you want to come inside for some tea? She asks. Mike would love to. But another twist. At home, Sarah falls ill again. Mike says they'll make it work another time, and he takes off. Sarah goes to bed. Sarah wakes up in the middle of the night. She hears noises downstairs. She calls the police who arrive on the scene. They do a quick scan. Everything seems fine. Finally, they check the basement. They don't want to tell her what they find. But Sarah insists. It's her house, after all. The police then tell her. Her basement was covered in plastic. There was a hammer and a saw on the ground. Sarah informs them she had been feeling ill. Law enforcement proceeds to do a drug test and finds that she has a slew of drugs running through her system. They can't believe she's conscious. What really happened? A few weeks later, I heard an eerily similar story. Let's say this woman's name is Michelle. Michelle is in her early 20s and just moved to Boston for university. The house she moves into is a bit old, so she isn't that concerned when she hears strange noises. After telling some family members, they suggest she calls police just to make sure everything is fine. Who knows? Maybe someone is roaming around near the house late at night. So Michelle calls the police. She emphasizes to law enforcement it's almost certainly nothing, and the person on dispatch says, since it's not a rush, 
that the cops will be there in about 40 minutes. They tell Michelle it's a busy night. As is customary, they stay on the line with Michelle in the event something happens while she waits. And then suddenly, only three minutes later, police cars storm the front of the home and search the house. And they find a man in the basement. The man has a tool set packed with different tools. Tools that, as Vice reported, would be used as, quote, torture devices or to dismember a body. And then comes perhaps the most shocking part, at least for Michelle. The man is someone she met on Tinder and went on a date with. During the date, she mentioned she'd lived alone. Clearly, this predator wanted to take advantage. As it turns out, the 911 dispatcher thought she had heard someone on the other line of the call. So while she pretended to agree with Michelle that it was nothing and said it would take 40 minutes, she told police to get there ASAP. They caught the man red-handed. I thought these would make for interesting episodes, so I looked them up on the Google machine. The first story I told came from a video on Twitter. It was posted on April 24th and had been viewed nearly 2 million times. But as I searched around to get more details about this story, small facts seemed to change. In some tellings of the story, Michelle, with that house in Boston, was living somewhere in the middle of nowhere, apparently in the woods somewhere, which certainly sounds more scary. When reporters tried reaching out to the woman who posted the story, Kara Patton, they didn't get a response. In fact, nobody has been able to prove anything. The names of the people involved, the person who first told or reported the story, law enforcement don't have records of any of this, nothing. It has become clear Both of these first two stories are urban legends. There are, of course, plenty of examples you can find in which there were Tinder dates gone wrong. Tinder dates, in fact, in which someone was murdered. But not here. And all of this got me thinking, how are urban legends formed? How have they changed? What makes an urban legend spread across the world? Well, for starters, what even is an urban legend? Hmm, that's a good question. So an urban legend is typically a story that gets passed around through word of mouth, um, person to person. That's Matthew Hudson, author of The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, and a writer for a lot of reputable publications. Science Magazine, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, you get the gist. And usually has some sort of salacious content that makes it very memorable. It's kind of sticky in your memory, and it often has some sort of warning embedded in it. And so they can be things like uh, tales of of some weird murder, or it can be uh, sort of advice about some product. If you use a product the wrong way, then something terrible happens. They're like a mental virus, and they can mutate. So just like any good story or, or anecdote or myth, they can sort of evolve as they get passed on. Um, But there's usually some sort of central theme or idea that holds together all the different versions along a a lineage. Although elements of an urban legend may have truth in them, they aren't, as a story, well, you know, real. Now, before we get to the juicy stuff, I got to bog you down on one more part of this phrase that 
I find interesting. What is the urban in urban legend? I think urban legends are called urban legends as opposed to just legends because a lot of them are situated in the modern everyday world. Like when you think of legends, you think of maybe gods or ancient war heroes or magical forests or, or something like that. Whereas urban legends are um, like if you eat too many pop rocks, your your stomach explodes, that kind of thing. Like these are things that are, are situated in the built modern uh, industrialized world, things that you might encounter in your daily life in, in a city or in a suburb or something like that. So next I wanted to know, what is the anatomy of an urban legend? So next I wanted to know, what is the anatomy of an urban legend? There are a few factors that psychologists have found that make urban legends particularly sticky or shareable. One, survival. Hudson wrote in one article, our ancestors evolved in an environment too dangerous to question themselves every time they thought they saw a lion or second-guess every story from a tribe member. So we've evolved to pay more attention to information that is closely related to survival and reproduction. Makes sense, right? You put someone's life on the line, we're going to care a little bit more. Number two, a warning. Researchers have also found that urban legends that have to do with uh, hazards are more believable than ones that are not, uh, or ones that have to do with benefits. So for instance, if you hear that pit bulls uh, have attacked a certain number of people that's going to stick in your head more than pit bulls uh, are actually really nice or can do a particular trick or something. Uh, because it makes more sense to be aware to threats in our environment. Because if you forget that a pit bull is dangerous and then you get attacked by a pit bull, that's a lot worse than um, forgetting that it can that they're friendly and can do some some trick. So another way of saying this is that bad is stronger than good. The sort of downsides of underestimating hazards are a lot worse than the upsides of underestimating benefits. Number three, and I love this one, dinner table conversation. Telling people about something horrific, something that they should be aware of, even if not totally true, can make you feel reliable, a trusted source. And in some cases, even if it's untrue, it won't stop people from talking about it because, well... It can just be fun dinner table conversation. So people might be fact-checking and, and saying it's not true. This is Dr. Joseph Stubbersfield, an assistant professor in psychology at Harawat University, Edinburgh, and an urban legend expert and researcher. What a cool job. But that doesn't necessarily stop it from being successful in terms of being transmitted around. It just changes the, the reason why people are spreading it around. So I think sometimes people aren't necessarily spreading these stories because they believe them to be true. Sometimes they're spreading them because they think they're good stories and you know you don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And sometimes I think people are spreading them as a kind of example of, you know, can you believe 
people are telling this story, isn't it obviously untrue? The story itself is still being spread, but the, the framing can be quite different. And this plays right into number four, repetition. Said Matthew Hudson. If you hear something a lot, you're more likely to believe it. Uh, and that happens even if we, on a conscious, explicit level, don't believe it. So, for instance, if you hear a couple times that the Atlantic Ocean is the biggest ocean in the world, your rating of the, the truth of that statement increases, even if someone then asks you, okay, what's the biggest ocean in the, in the world? And you correctly say, oh, it's the Pacific Ocean, not the Atlantic Ocean. So urban legends play on these subconscious or intuitive processes so that even if you can consciously check them and say, okay, that's not actually true or that's not believable or there's some logical problems with that, uh, we're still influenced by, uh, by our subconscious. Number five, potential of truth. There's another factor that psychologists call minimal counterintuitiveness. So it's good for a, a urban legend to have like one or two or three elements of it that are kind of weird or counterintuitive, um, as opposed to having none, which just makes it just a boring story that you're not going to remember later, or having a lot of things, which just makes it really confusing and, and you, you know, unbelievable and you can't fit it into your existing belief system. So in one study, they uh, researchers looked at a bunch of versions of this Bloody Mary urban legend where you, you say um, like Bloody Mary three times into a, a mirror and then she comes out and scratches your face off. And they counted the, the number of elements in it that were counterintuitive or not counterintuitive. And they found that most versions of it had like two or three counterintuitive elements. Things like, you know, just someone popping out of a mirror. That's counterintuitive. Um, whereas if you loaded them on, and had a bunch of things like she was also headless and there's also blood pouring out of the sink and she also she popped out of the toilet. That's just a lot going on there. And that's not going to, you know, that's not going to stick. And those, those versions were not very common. Or just think about that Tinder story I told you. It's not as if it's about people on some unknown dating app. The story begins with an app most of us have heard about, have used, or maybe friends have used. In that sense, it's grounded in reality. And something we all know does exist. It has a perfectly believable beginning. Two people meeting on an app. Number six, how a story is told. So Elizabeth Loftus is a psychologist at the University of California, Irvine, who's done a lot of important work on false memories. She's found that the way events are described can encourage people to um, make things up in their head. To make up memories. So for instance, in, in one study, she showed people videos of a car crash. And then later she asked them either, did you see broken glass when the first car hit the other car? Or did you see broken glass when the first car smashed into the other car? And when people heard the, heard the event described as one car smashing into the other one, as opposed to just hitting it, they were more likely to recall seeing broken glass even though there is actually no broken glass in the video. In fact, in this study, a week after participants saw the film, 32% of those who had read Smashed recalled seeing broken glass. Again, there was none. Versus 14% for those who'd read the car was just hit. 
the mere suggestion of speed had caused them to populate their recollections with destruction. Number seven, we as humans are believers. So the human mind has kind of a bias toward believing things over disbelieving them. First of all, because it's just easier to believe things than to question things. Even just thinking about an event that didn't happen and saying, oh, maybe I didn't brush my teeth this morning. In thinking that, you're imagining the act of brushing your teeth. And so that that's a very visual, that's more visual than not brushing your teeth. And so that kind of sticks in your head. So if you imagine something didn't happen, over time, the sort of little mental tag of X didn't happen falls off and you just have this concrete memory of the sort of visual experience of the event. We also have kind of a social bias toward believing other people when they tell us things, partly to be polite because you don't want to challenge everything that anyone tells you, partly because most things that people tell you are true. Uh, and so it just makes sense as a, a default uh, to believe things when people tell you. Uh, and it makes co cooperation a lot easier in life. Uh, there's also a, a mental fluency effect. The more you hear something or the more you imagine something, the easier it is to imagine it. Number eight and last, and perhaps the most important element, is a social component. Number eight, and last, and perhaps the most important element, is a social component. So it often features a kind of, some kind of outgroup minority as the, as the threat, which obviously plays upon kind of also related psychology to do with in-group, out-group kind of stuff. Again, here's urban legend researcher and expert, Dr. Joseph Stubbersfield. There's a, another great one with a woman who has a beehive hairdo. I mean, you can kind of guess the age of these sometimes from some of the, the details they feature. But a woman has a, a beehive hairdo and she never takes it down and doesn't really wash it. And then eventually she kind of drops down dead. And it's because spiders had been nesting in her hair and had bitten into her scalp and poisoned her. But that, so that's an example of where the threat is entirely to do with kind of environmental survival rather than a, and it doesn't have a social aspect. So I'd expect something like that probably to be less successful because it does seem, through the research I've done at least, that the, the social information is really what attracts people to them. In that example, with the spiders nesting in the woman's hair, the urban legend consists of just one person. So it's not as popular as the following example in which there are multiple people, people interacting with other people. So a woman is in a shopping mall with her child and the child goes missing. And she searches everywhere for the child and eventually the child is found in the toilet uh, in a pool of blood and the child has been attacked as part of a gang initiation and emasculated. So this legend, obviously, it gets into the kind of social interaction because you've got a social interaction between the mother and son, these kind of key relationships. There's also this kind of alternative social interaction in that it's a gang initiation and the threat is also social because it's essentially another person. So what does that say about us as people? Yeah, we're a social species. Our social interactions are massively important in terms of how we think about ourselves, in terms of how we think about others. These kind of social relationships are vitally important to the way humans just operate in the world. So narratives of 
of any kind, really, which feature complex social interactions or something about social relationships are often very popular. You know, so soap operas, gossip magazines, all this kind of stuff is ticking that kind of social bias, um, cognitive bias for social information. Although we live in a day and age where we can fact check urban legends just as quickly as we can hear about them, it turns out we may be in the golden age of urban legends, which is starting to sound a lot like fake news. Said Matthew Hudson. Technology has changed the way that we develop and experience false memories. So there have always been false memories. Sometimes we imagine things that we wish had happened or people tell stories about things that happened and we start to picture actually being there and we think that we experienced them or saw them. But with the internet, these stories and these seeds for false memories can travel a lot faster and a lot wider. So there's social media, there are news websites, fake news websites. A lot of them have fake news stories, or they have urban legends, or they just have misinformation or rumors that people pass around. And so all of these things, when you hear about it, you might imagine having seen it happen on the news or experiencing it. And then also technology can help target particular audiences. So there are all kinds of algorithms that send certain news stories or certain ads toward particular people based on their demographics or their usage of uh, social media or what kinds of websites they visit. So it can target you very specifically and think that, okay, you're going to be very receptive to this idea or to this news story. And so they figure out where to plant these seeds of ideas or these seeds of memories. And so it can be very, very targeted. So could those first two Tinder stories be true? Sure, they could be. But facts are a stubborn thing, and there are just no facts, no evidence, no people, absolutely nothing to tell us that they are, in fact, true. I have two more stories for you. In the late 1980s, there was something going on in Staten Island which scared people across the country. It was the tale of Cropsy, a boogeyman who would go around at night and cut open and remove the organs of children. It was a simple but horrifying urban legend. The only issue? It wasn't an urban legend. Around the same time, Andre Rand was found and convicted for child abduction. He was later connected to several child disappearances from the 1970s. There's another story out of Pennsylvania. It involves a peaceful street in the suburbs. A local resident is walking one night when he hears something behind him. It's a man with a misshapen face. Others report about this man, and he becomes known as Charlie No-Face. Well, as it turns out, there was a man named Ray Robinson. And he did, in fact, have a disfigured face because of an electrical accident when he was a child. Ray knew his face scared people, and so he'd only walk around at night when he thought people wouldn't notice. So while some call these urban legends, I disagree. They're simply nonfiction stories. When telling these stories, people may use particularly ominous language. They may exaggerate. They may say Charlie No-Face crept up behind them opposed to, you know, was already walking behind them and they noticed. At their core, both are real. 
even though they sound made up. It's quite a head fake. Stories are complicated things, so be careful. Most urban legends are a work of seductive and smart storytelling. They play on our fears, they play on our instincts, and while components of a good urban legend may have nuggets of something that happened, they are not what really happened. Next week on What Really Happened, it's the cult heard around the world, Nexium. But how did it even begin? And who were the people in charge? And what does it say about cults? That's next week on What Really Happened. If you like the podcast, I'd humbly ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. It actually can make a big difference. For any other feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks, or go to jenkspod.com for more information on the sources for this podcast.